Well, good morning again, everyone. I think in that uh, song that we just sang, I think it referenced three or four times uh, the new song that we're going to sing when we see the Lord in glory. And uh, one of my uh, favorite hymns is uh, Tell Me the Old, Old Story. But then it says in that song, um, let me look at the verse here. Um, no, this isn't the right one. But anyway, it says the... Uh, it says, when we get in heaven and sing that new, new, new song, twill be the old, old story that I have loved so long. And uh, that's what I'm here to talk about today. I don't have a, a new, new story to tell you. It's an old, old story. It's the story of Jesus and his love. And uh, so today, uh, as I share the story with you, we're going to talk about the resurrection and we're going to talk about three, uh, three important topics relating to the resurrection. The first that we're going to talk about is the story of Jesus. It's important who is resurrected. And so I'm, we'll, uh, we'll talk about Jesus. And then uh, secondly, we'll talk about believing the, in the resurrection and the challenge to believe it. And uh, we'll look at um, what it took for various people to believe that Jesus was indeed risen from the dead. And then the third part is the difference that the resurrection makes in a believer's life. And um, there'll be a uh, lot of practical challenges um, for the believers here. Well, let's get started on the, uh, the story. Do you, do you guys read the news? Do you uh, keep uh, up with, with events? Um, not keeping up with business news, but uh, the, the news article that we have today is both old news and new news, today's news, and also future news as well. The resurrection. Jesus was raised from the dead 2,000 years ago, give or take, so it's old news. It's today's news because today is Easter that we celebrate when Jesus rose from the dead. And it's tomorrow's news because we have hope of resurrection. We will be risen to get together, given new bodies, and dwell forever with the Lord. So today's story is about the, uh, about the news. But here's the news about Jesus. Jesus was promised from ages past, indeed from when man first sinned, it was promised that there would be one that would crush the devil's head. And as the centuries rolled on, the promise was renewed and renewed and renewed again. A Savior is coming. A Savior is coming. Fast forward to Mary. And Lord Jesus' birth is so important that the Lord saw fit to send His angels as messengers to Mary and Joseph saying that Messiah that you've been waiting for, for all these ages, he's coming, he's coming to you. How special that message was that the angels brought. We know that the Lord Jesus was born of a virgin. His birth was supernatural. It said that uh, Mary was overshadowed by the Spirit of the Almighty. This was no human occurrence. This was no normal happenstance. This is God becoming flesh and coming to earth. 
And when he was born again, the angels trumpeted, saying, Today there is born to you in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And we know that the Lord Jesus is both fully God and fully man. It says in uh, John 1.1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then we find out in verse 14 that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the Jesus that we're here to talk about today, that only begotten of the Father who is full of grace and truth. He is God made flesh. There's never been anyone like Him, nor will ever be again. And as, after Jesus was born, as he grew up, he lived a completely perfect and sinless life. So much that everyone who knew him remarked that there was no deceitfulness or guile found in him. He was uh, taken out into the desert and tested by the devil himself for, for 40 days. And offered the kingdoms of the world, offered all the wealth, all the, uh, the material things, all the worship and adoration of mankind. And the Lord re- merely rebuked the devil, showing that sin and lust after uh, his own desires had no place in his life. But he was here completely to serve the Father and to do the Father's will on earth. We see the evidence of the Lord Jesus in his many miracles that he performed in his life on earth, starting with turning the water into wine at the wedding in Cana, continuing to healing the sick, healing the leprous, restoring the maimed and the blind and the deaf, even raising the dead. Who else could this be but God in the flesh? We see that the Lord Jesus even controlled the very wind and the waves. So his disciples were astonished and said, who can this be that the wind and the waves obey him? And he also knew the very thought and intentions in men's hearts. If you look at the story of when he heals the paralytic man who was let down through the roof, he says to the man, your sins are forgiven you. And the people that were there doubted, saying, thinking in their mind, how can he say that he can forgive sins? Who is he? And the Lord Jesus looked at him and perceived the question that was in their hearts. And he says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Tell this man to rise up and walk. It's easy to say to someone, your sins are forgiven if there's no external evidence. But no one can say to a crippled a person who's been a cripple since birth, rise up and walk if they don't have power. And that paralyzed man got up and carried his bedroll out with him, completely restored. It's marvelous when we think of who Jesus is. The, uh, the evidence is 
overwhelming and insurmountable. And that's our Savior. That's who, we, who we're here to talk about today. The Lord Jesus also didn't just show us who He was. He also taught us about the Father. In uh, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, John 3.16, He says of His Father, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, talking about Himself, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He shows us the mind of the Father, that great love that the Father has towards us. Because mankind was not a friend of God. And we know that. We know that we're enemies of God, following in our own paths and our own ways. It says, but the Father so loved the world, that rebellious, sinful hearts, you and me, that He sent His Son, the Lord Jesus, that whoever believes in Him might not perish, but have everlasting life. It also says in uh, Hebrews 1, 1 through 1-3, that God, who at various times in His various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has now, in these last days, spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things. Jesus is revealing the Father to man. And uh, the, the writer of Hebrews goes on to talk about the magnificence of the Lord Jesus in His, in his ministry towards us, in His uh, high priestly ministry towards those who believe in Him. Um, really, the, I think the whole book of Hebrews is just a treatise on the, the magnificence of the Lord Jesus. And... Uh, how he fulfilled every, how he fulfills every need and desire of uh, of mankind. Speaking of those needs, we need a savior. We need someone to die in our place to take on the the punishment for sin, because we are powerless. We are guilty. We are the condemned. We can't do anything of ourselves to gain favor with God, but are in dire danger of eternal punishment. But the Lord Jesus came to take upon Himself my sin and your sin. He was rec- it was recognized of Him before He even died on the cross that that was His purpose. That's why He came. John the Baptist says in John 1.29, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John was there to proclaim the reason why Jesus came. It was still three years yet, when John said this, it was still three years yet until Christ would actually die. But John proclaimed Him as coming to take away the sin of the world. It was prophesied even even before John the Baptist in Isaiah 53, it says, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and by His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. 
We have turned every one to his own way, but the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah wrote this hundreds of years before Christ ultimately came, but that was his purpose. That's why he came. And it just it boggles the mind when you try and comprehend all of this was personified in the Lord Jesus. God in the flesh come to take away our sins, to show the love of the Father. And we know that at the end of his life, he willingly went up to Calvary. He willingly bore that cross. He willingly stretched out his arms to receive the nails. He willingly died for you and for me. That's who we're here to remember this morning. And it was so great uh, this morning at the breaking of bread to think of his life and his death and his resurrection and worship him. We had the very uh, physical reminders of the bread and the grape juice before us this morning, reminding us of his body being broken, torn, and offered for us. The cup symbolizing his blood that was poured forth on our behalf. Lord Jesus wasn't doing it because he was going to get a, a nice house and a shiny car someplace. Those things are insignificant. The Lord did it because he loved us. Because his father loved us and sent him to die. And it just, uh, my, my words are too feeble to convey how awesome and great and majestic the Lord Jesus was and how staggering it is that he would die for me. That he would offer himself for such a pitiful wretch as I. And that's why the Lord Jesus came. That's why he put on flesh and humbled himself and came as a man. And he humbled himself to the form of the lowest servant. Because he loved us. And that's the gospel. That's who Jesus is. That's the good news that is proclaimed for the whole world to hear. That the Lord Jesus is offered on our behalf. That God loves mankind so much that He would send His Son. But the story's not done there. It's not finished. Paul talks, summarizes the Gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, when he said, For Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried... And that he rose the third, again the third day according to the scriptures. If, it's, if it stops at the cross, it's a wondrous story. But God is revealed in the resurrection. That the sacrifice that Jesus made conquered sin and death. The grave could not hold him. And that the... Uh, eternal favor that Jesus has is shown by the Father raising Him from the dead. 
His work is finished. Death cannot hold him nor us who believe in him. And that's the good news. That's worth celebrating. That's worth having a holiday every year. That's worth remembering every Sunday, every day, that Jesus died and was raised from the dead. And that's what Easter is all about. That's why we're here this morning. If we're, if we're gathered here this morning to celebrate a, a dead Savior, what's, what's the big deal about that? But no, we celebrate a risen Savior, Lord Jesus Christ, who is seated at the right hand of His Father on high. <clears throat> and this morning I'd um, like to look at a few people um, as they believed in the, in the resurrection. So if you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20, I'm going to turn there myself, and we'll look at the events of the resurrection and the, and the people who believed in Him. It says in uh, John chapter 20, verse 1, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. We know that's John who's writing this. And said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Mary thinks that someone has opened the tomb and removed the Lord Jesus. She doesn't yet understand what's actually happened. In verse 3, Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple, John, outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. I don't fully understand what was going through John's mind that he was so curious to see what was happening at the tomb that he outruns Peter on the way there. But yet when he gets there, he doesn't go in. He kind of stops at the door and kind of looks in, bends down a little bit, looks in and says, kind of thinks what's going on, but he doesn't go into the tomb. And I don't know what was going through John's mind at that point. But I do know the enthusiasm of Peter. <laughs> in verse 6, it says, when Simon Peter came, he probably caught up huffing and puffing, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Um, it says that Simon Peter, sorry, I skipped a phrase, he went into the tomb in verse 6. I think Peter went straight in like an arrow. I don't even know if he slowed down at the doorway. <laughs> Straight in. And when Peter saw that the Lord was not there and the, claws were, the, the grave clothes were left behind, I think Peter's heart must have jumped for joy because the last time he saw the Lord, 
he had just betrayed him. He just denied him three times, saying, I don't know this man. And sure, he didn't betray him like Judas Iscariot, but it says that after Simon Peter denied the Lord the third time, it said that the Lord looked at him as the rooster crowed, and that Peter went out and wept bitterly. I think Peter must have been a wreck for the last couple days as the Lord was in the tomb, knowing that his Lord, a man who he'd followed for the last three years, the last thing he had said about him was, I don't know this man. I think Peter had lots and lots of time to repent and break over those three days that the Lord was in the tomb. And now that the tomb door is open and the grave clothes are left behind, I can only imagine the excitement in Peter's heart, the wonder, the rejoicing. He's not, he's not dead. I can see him again. Man, Peter must have been excited. And then in verse 8, it says, Then the other disciple, who came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and believed. Right away, John, as he enters the tomb, realizes that the words that the Lord has spoken to them earlier about how he must rise again, he realizes it's true. The Lord is risen and he believes. He was quick to believe. And he's recorded in Scripture for all time as being quick to believe in the resurrection. He's honored for it. And I think there's much uh, honor and glory to those who when they see the evidence, when they hear the word of the Lord and are quick to believe in the res resurrection, the Lord honors those who believe in Him. <clears throat> it says in verse 9, For as yet they did not know the Scripture that He must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. So they didn't fully understand everything the Scripture had said, but they believed that the Lord was indeed risen from the dead. And they went back with the others. I'm not sure what was going through Mary's heart, but we see in verse 11 that she stayed there at the tomb after she brought Peter and John back to the tomb. She stayed there. They left, but she stayed there weeping. I think perhaps Mary was a little slower to believe that he was actually risen and not just his body was moved somewhere else. And that's why she was weeping. But the gracious Lord sent two angels in verse 12, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, and did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus asked her, Woman, why are you weeping? 
Whom are you seeking? And she, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Mary twice is asked the same question. Why are you weeping? She has the same evidence that Peter and John had. The empty tomb. (laughs) And there's no reason anymore for her to weep. But not to be too hard on her, because the Lord is very gracious to her in sending the angels and appearing to him appearing to Mary himself. In verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. Mary heard the word of the Lord as he called her name. And she recognized him and said, Teacher, Rabboni. Blessed are they who hear the Lord calling them and respond and believe that He is risen. Mary believed because she heard Him call her name. Man, what I wouldn't give to trade places with Mary to be there in the garden and to hear Him call my name and to have my tears Turn to joy, just like that. How wonderful that would be. Yeah, Mary might have been a little slower to believe the resurrection, but she believed. Hmm. Then later in uh, John chapter 20, verse 19, it says. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. I think the uh, disciples were gathered in that upper room. Perhaps some of them didn't know whether to believe what Mary and Peter and John were telling them or not. But they were all gathered in one place and Jesus appeared to them. And it says, (laughs) a great understatement. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. I can only imagine the jubilation that must have gone on in that upper room. This is Jesus. He's back. And he shows them his hands. He shows them his side where he was pierced with the spear. And he says, peace to you. Oh, how glad the disciples must have been how much they must have rejoiced to see their Lord again with them. I think they might might have even been a little bit frightened because Jesus twice says to them, peace. (laughs) I don't know if they were yelling with excitement or fearful or what, but Jesus says, peace, peace be to you. I'm here. 
And to those of us who know the Lord Jesus know, and know that He has risen from the dead, what, what peace we have in our hearts, do we not? The peace of knowing the Lord Jesus and that He is with us. And that the very evidence of His resurrection is right here before us. And, uh, but there was one person who wasn't there when the Lord Jesus appeared to him. We know that Thomas wasn't there in the room. It says in verse 24, Now Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and again stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. And then he immediately singles Thomas out and he says, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. I can only imagine the transformation that must have happened so fast in Thomas' mind. As it had been eight days since the Lord had appeared to the disciples, eight days of Thomas saying, where is he? If he's back, where is he? I don't see the nail prints in his hand. I don't see the, the mark of the spear in his side. Where is he? And when the Lord reappears... He singles Thomas out immediately. Man, that must have been daggers into Thomas's heart. He says to Thomas, don't be unbelieving, but believing. And it's to Thomas's credit, I think that it's not recorded that he actually does put his finger. Just the fact that the Lord knew what he said when the Lord wasn't even there. The fact that the Lord appeared to them in the middle of a locked room. And says, Thomas, here's the evidence. See for yourself. I think, uh, I think Thomas's knees must have sagged a little. I think he must have gone down and said, my Lord and my God. And worshipped at Jesus' feet. I think Thomas was undone a little bit by the appearing of the Lord. And Je Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. And blessed is Thomas for believing. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's the challenge for us here today. If you're here this morning and you don't believe in the resurrection, if you're listening to this and you don't believe that Jesus, the Messiah, died for your sins, was buried and rose three days later from the dead. If you don't believe that, the Lord's offering you a very direct challenge. And He says, Blessed are you 
having not seen who believe. That's the challenge. What will it take to get you to believe? Will you believe at first, first sight, first word, the empty tomb, the empty grave clothes? Will you believe by hearing the word of the Lord, what He has said, that He is indeed risen? Or will you not seen, yet believe that the Lord is risen? You know, there's, there's evidence all over for the resurrection of the Lord. And uh, if you're looking for historical evidence, um, here's a historical author that lives at, uh, at the time of Jesus who records his resurrection. But this is just a man, this man Josephus, who wrote down this history of Jews and, and wrote about the resurrection of the Lord. He's just a man. This is the Word of God. This is the true authority. And there's far more detail in the Word of God than any of the writings of the historian Josephus or otherwise. Far more evidence. You can trust the Word of God. Sure, there's contemporary sources if you want to look at that, but this is the Word of God. This is the true authority that we have that Jesus is indeed risen from the dead. Blessed are you who have not seen and yet believe. All right, so we've looked at the Lord Jesus, who He is. We've looked at His life. We've looked at His resurrection. We've seen the blessings that come to those who believe. But in this third part, I'd like to talk um, in the last few minutes that I have here about the difference that the resurrection makes to us who, who do believe. <clears throat> Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And uh, I'm going to attempt to go through about three sermons worth of material. <laughs> and... Uh, in the next few minutes here, just kind of in summary. Second Corinthians chapter 5. Talking about the, uh, the hope of the resurrection. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. This earthly house or tent that he's talking about, that's the body, that's this flesh that I dwell in right now. But it can be destroyed rather easily, it turns out. There's nothing really special about this flesh that I've got right now. It's mortal, it's fragile, it's decaying. I'm a young man now, but... Another few years, I'll be an old man. And a few years after that, I'll be dead. This flesh is not what it's all about. But it says in this verse, if it's destroyed, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands. Eternal in the heavens. Wow, that sounds a lot better, doesn't it? For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven, if indeed, 
If indeed, be, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. You see, the Lord, the Lord when He created us, He placed eternity into our hearts. We know that this life is not all there is. As much as we would like, or some people would like to deny the fact that there is any other life. They would like to deny that God even exists. They would like to deny anything eternal. But it says that we yearn. Our very souls yearn. Creation labors as if with labor pangs. What? Not for the mortal things to be taken away. No, but for the eternal things to swallow up, to complete, to fulfill, to redeem all that is now based and mortal. This body, which is just flesh, will one day be clothed in immortality. Eternal victory over death. Eternal perfection in the presence of God forever. That's what we have to look forward to. And how do we know that this is going to happen? It says in verse 5, Now He who has prepared for us this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. This plan for eternal life, this plan for our mortal, weak, fleshly bodies to completely be caught up and made a new body eternally with the Lord. It says the person who planned this is God. And we know that His plans come to pass irrefutably and irrevocably. It said, and furthermore, if it wasn't enough evidence, enough reason to believe it, that God, this is God's plan, he said he has also given us his Holy Spirit now as a guarantee. The Holy Spirit that dwell, indwells every believer is given as a seal, as that stamped, sealed package ready for delivery to eternity. That's the Holy Spirit, the evidence of the Holy Spirit in our life. God doesn't indwell what's not going to be His forever. It's not, this is not a temporary thing that the Spirit is in us. He's given us as a, as a seal. This is what's forever. This is mine. And your mortal body will be clothed in immortality and dwell with me forever. Verse 6, So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent for the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. 
Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. Paul says that if we're here in this body, we're absent from being with the Lord. But when we leave this mortal body behind, then we're present with the Lord. And that's a trade that any believer should make gladly. Would you rather have this meat, or would you rather have the eternal presence of the Lord? It's not exactly a hard decision. But Paul says it's fitting for a time that we dwell here and serve the Lord. He's prepared for us good works beforehand that we should walk in them. If that were all the goal of a believer was to be with the Lord with Him in eternity, then when we were saved, we should just be instantly transported into His presence. But no, there's a calling. In verse 9, he says, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. We have a mission, a purpose, here while we live here on this earth. But that purpose is a purpose that's given to us because one day we will be with Him. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we serve Him. We have a purpose to be well-pleasing to Him. And Paul furthermore encourages the believers and challenges them, saying, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. See, the Lord, or sorry, Paul is saying here, we're going to have to appear before the Lord and give account for the things that, that we've done while we're on this earth. That's why he says if we strive, whether, whatever we do, to be well-pleasing to the Lord, whether we're working our job or talking to people, evangelizing, serving our families, serving in the church, whatever we do while we're in this body, he says everything that we do, we try to honor the Lord with it, knowing that one day we must give account at the judgment seat of Christ. And no, as believers, we're not going to be eternally damned if we don't serve the Lord. But there's much reward to be had. There's much glory for us to get from serving the Lord and having a reward eternal in heaven. Don's preached in the past from the book of Matthew about making heavenly investments Says, don't, uh, it says, don't lay up for your treasures here on earth where moth and rust corrupt and destroy, to paraphrase the verse. It says, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where thieves cannot break in and steal and moth and rust do not destroy. We have an eternal reward waiting for us. And all we have to do is realize that great hope in the resurrection that we have that the Lord has placed His Holy Spirit in us to empower us to serve Him 
and to honor Him and to merely live out that purpose that the Lord has given to us. Whatever it is, great or small, the Lord says, I've given you a purpose and a hope. And there's great reward to be had. And so that's the encouragement to the saints that that Paul is giving in this passage. Saying, serve the Lord. It's your whole purpose. It's your whole hope. It says further in verse 14 of chapter 5, For the love of Christ compels us. Why? Because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. The love of Christ compels us. And we talked earlier about the love of Christ. He was the one who lived out his perfect life, the sole purpose of demonstrating the love of God and ultimately stretched out his arms on the cross and died on our behalf. There's never been any love before or since greater than the love of Christ. And it says that great love compels us. Compels us that we who live should not live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again. That's our compulsion to serve the Lord How can we not serve someone who loved us that much? Think even of a a husband and wife relationship, right? There's great love between those two people. And what do they do? They serve each other. They demonstrate their love to each other over and over. It's not that one has forgotten that the other loves him, that they need to re-demonstrate it. It's that the love that they have for each other compels them to love and serve and honor one another. Love must be demonstrated. It's not love if it's not worked out. And the the love that we have for Christ is compelled in us in a response to His love. And it compels us to serve Him. And if we forget about the resurrection we forget about God's love towards us being demonstrated, then we forget about all of our reason to serve the Lord. I have no reason to serve someone that doesn't love me. But the Lord loves me. So I serve Him. How much more compulsion can one have? He gave His life. There's no greater love That those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The believer who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ right now is made new. 
Sure, he doesn't have a new physical body yet. But that old man, that old nature of sin has died with Christ. And we see that in the symbolism of baptism. We've died with Christ. We identify with him in his death. We identify with his resurrection. We identify with that new life that he's given, that new nature that is not bound by the power of sin. The penalty of eternal damnation can no longer stick. It's been completely and utterly removed from us as far as the east is from the west by the payment that Christ has offered on our behalf. And we are now a new creation with the power to serve Him. The power to say no to sin. And the power that will one day be swallowed up into eternal, immortal, new life together forever with the Lord. And the final word in... uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, it says, Now then we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Paul says we're now ambassadors on Christ's behalf imploring those who do not believe, be reconciled to God. We beg you, we implore you, we strongly urge you, live no longer in death, in mortality, in futility, in unrighteousness. No longer do you need to be bound by those things. Be reconciled to God. Have everything in your life made right. Experience the hope that we all have in the resurrection. All of these things that we've looked at today are because our Lord Jesus is risen. Without it, we are of all men most pitiable. But we as ambassadors on Christ's behalf implore you, be reconciled to God. That we, at the end, it says at the end of the chapter, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Aren't you glad that the Lord rose from the dead? I'm glad that we can participate in the Lord's righteousness and see Him one day face to face. I was talking uh, last week to my friend John on the phone and uh, we just spent, I don't know, 20 or 30 minutes just talking about the, the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus that all of these broken things in the world, um, he's, he's dealing with a, a lot of uh, co-workers right now, a lot of people that he doesn't know very well. And uh, some of the people he's working with are a little rough around the edges. And uh, he, says, he said, but I know that none of that matters. That even if they're taking the Lord's name in vain repeatedly, said it's only because they don't know who he really is. They don't understand. They don't have the hope that I have. 
And they don't, they don't understand or comprehend how majestic that hope is. I mean, one day we are going to be in the presence of God. And it's not going to be just for one day. It's going to be for all of eternity. No more sickness. No more pain. No more death. Whether fear of death ourselves or having to watch someone else die. We all know that pain. We won't have to experience it anymore. The Lord will wipe away every tear from our eyes. All of the former things shall pass away. Behold, all things shall be made new. And I'm not saying anything new to you this morning. It's already been written down. But it's so good to be reminded of it. So good to just think about, wow. Lord, I get to spend all eternity with you. And all the people that have gone before that I so dearly miss now, I get to see them again. And if I, like Thomas, want to put my hands in the nail prints in his hands, I get to do that too. I get to see my Savior that closely, that personally, to know him. The fellowship of his suffering and the power of his resurrection That's what we pray for. That's what we will one day experience. Man, I'm looking forward to that. Are you? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for what you've given to us. We thank you for Easter that we can celebrate you rising from the dead. I wish I could be there with Peter and John as they came to the tomb. Lord, to be there with Mary and hear my name spoken. And Lord, I didn't get to experience it then, but I know one day I will see you face to face and you will speak my name. Lord, it's, it's so exciting to hear you speak my name. I get choked up. Lord, we just thank you for that hope that you've given to us for that complete and utter conquering of death so that we do not fear it. And Lord, we pray if, for those that do not know the power of your resurrection, Lord, that they would believe in you. Lord, that they might be with us, casting their reward at your feet. Man, we look forward to that day and we say, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Come, Lord Jesus, come, we pray. Amen.